Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of the STEMcast podcast. The goal of our podcast is to create an accessible resource for students of all levels of STEM to be mentored by leading professionals and advance your careers. Your hosts for today's podcast are Derek and myself, Nathan. Today, we're very excited to bring in a very special guest, Dr. Chen. We'll learn a bit more about over the course of this podcast. So maybe let's just start off with like a little introduction about yourself. For example, your background, your job title, and where you work. Uh, so... Thank you for inviting me today. Uh, my name is Adrian Chan. I'm a professor in the Department of Systems and Computer Engineering at Carleton University. I'm also an adjunct uh, professor in the School of Human Kinetics at the University of Ottawa and an affiliate researcher at the uh, VR Research Institute. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey uh, to get where you are today um, and a little bit about how a typical day looks like for you? Uh, so my background is uh, in computer engineering. I went to the University of Waterloo uh, and, and did computer engineering there. Uh, it's a co-op program, as you would imagine. Uh, after that, I went to do my master's degree in electrical engineering at the University of Toronto, which was at the Institute of Biomedical Engineering, which is now the Institute of Biomedical and Biomaterials Engineering. Um, still in electrical engineering, but uh, with an emphasis in biomedical. And then did my PhD in electrical engineering at the University of New Brunswick at their Institute of Biomedical Engineering. Uh, and so both at University of Toronto and, and the University of New Brunswick, uh, that's when I started getting into biomedical engineering. There wasn't any biomedical engineering degrees at the time, but essentially that's my, kind of what my training background would have been. Um, and then from that, um, took a position at Carleton University, starting as, uh, as a, a faculty member there. Uh, that was back in uh, 2003. So um, in your position at Carleton, like, how, can you describe to us a bit about like, how the typical day would look like for you? I guess through my career, it's, it's, it's kind of evolved as well. I mean, a faculty member, I would say, has kind of three buckets of, of work that they do, right? There's the teaching that we do. Uh, this is like course instruction and things like that. Um, there is the research that we are involved with. And so a lot of the research I'm doing is in biomedical engineering, uh, on the signals and sensors side of things, as well as some image processing. And then the third bucket, I would say, is kind of the administrative uh, load that I have. And I would say through my career, it's, it's kind of varied, you know, so there was like a, a real emphasis on teaching when I first started, uh, then I kind of grew my research uh, portfolio. I actually had an opportunity to do a lot of the admin stuff. So I served as the Associate Dean of Grad Studies, uh, the Assistant Vice President Academic, uh, the Associate Vice President Teaching and Learning as an interim position. So I've had a, like a, some times in my life where I was like really focused on the admin side of things. Right now, uh, I'm back to kind of focusing more uh, on the teaching and research, less on the admin. Um, most of my days is like meeting with my grad students and, and mm. uh, keeping their progress up to date, um, delivering my teaching, especially now uh, we're in, with an online um, teaching right now uh, and trying to adjust to that. It's my first time teaching actually online. So, you know, I'm spending a bit more time and effort um, trying to make sure that it's a supportive and, and effective learning environment there. Um, so there's a lot of the, yeah, communications, email, meetings, and things like that. So you said that you, there's like the admin side and there's a teaching research from the two. Which one do you think you prefer? Is there one that you prefer more than the other or both the same? I don't know. I, to be honest, I, I really enjoy all three of them. I would say that what I, what I love about my job is that it's kind of evolving, right? And so it varies from, from kind of year to year. So, you know, at some point in time, I'm being really focused on the teaching side of things and then some more on the research and some more on the admin. And so I, I do like all, all parts of it. What I would say is um, I like the variety, 
right? And so I like the fact that, you know, it can kind of uh, vary with time where my emphasis and time is spent. Okay. Um, and I guess um, on sort of going more to like the research side of um, those things, what kind of specific research does your lab at Carleton focus on? And um, I guess what kind of impact do you want to make with that research? Yeah, a lot of the work that I do uh, is based on my training and, and, and expertise. So it's involving kind of signal processing and image processing uh, aspects, as well as sensor systems, especially non-invasive sensor systems. And so uh, what I mean by that is like, you know, how do we um, develop systems to acquire biomedical data? And then how do we process that data to uh, get useful information? It might be diagnostic information or some other type of controls information. Um, and I guess what I'm working on right now is um, kind of aspects of what I call biomedical uh, signal quality. So, you know, we get a lot more of wearable kind of devices where we can acquire different types of data, whether it be like your electrocardiogram or your electromyogram or even movement data. Right. And that's wonderful because we get access to so much data. But the downside of that is um, the, the data is being collected in a non-controlled environment by non-expert users. And so some of the data can just be uh, junk because it's contaminated with noise and interference or the setup's incorrect. And so what we don't want to do is to make um, misinterpretations. So we make misdiagnoses or things like that. And so my work there is trying to figure out can I distinguish you know, like the, the good data versus the bad data? With the bad data, throw it away. With the good data, continue to process it and, and make decisions upon it. And then the other part that I'm working on currently right now is on the image processing side of things. And um, this is mainly looking at uh, histopathology images. So these are like stained cell images and trying to um, kind of segment and classify these images to make um, kind of diagnostic decisions from that, kind of automate that process so it's not as intense on the pathologists and which is of course a more costly uh, element. In terms of the impact, I guess it's okay. one of the things that you were talking about as well, which is um, I think my research is uh, a bit more on the applied side of things. So I, I look for problems that kind of um, clinicians kind of experience. Um, and so the signal quality one is a good example of that where I was working with, with an anesthesiologist where they were doing post-surgical um, monitoring of patients to identify when they are at risk of a heart attack. And so they did this ambulatory ECG monitoring. So they're monitoring the ECG when the person is moving about. Um, and the difficulty there is as the person was moving about, the uh, ECG was contaminated with noise. And so they were getting a lot of the false alarms. So every half hour, the system was like, this person could have a heart attack. <laughs> and it wasn't very useful because it was just the fact that the person was moving. And so the signal quality analysis that I was doing was just like trying to identify, you know, don't worry about this. It's not a, a true alarm. And yet still uh, allow for those true alarms to occur. And then on the image processing side of things, um, right now I'm working on kind of two projects. One is uh, on Hirschsprung's disease, which is a, a gut motility disease. So it's an intest intestines disease, basically. So at birth, some babies are born where the intestines are aganglionic, so they don't have any nerve cells that stimulate the intestines. So that means uh, the baby will end up not being able to poop, essentially. Yeah. And so they get constipated, sepsis can occur, and then uh, that could cause um, poor outcomes, including death. And so um, typically what they do is that they take a biopsy of the intestines and try to find out where, if there are nerve cells there, and if there are, it's a healthy part and they can do a surgical intervention. But again, that um, analysis by a pathologist is quite intensive. There's not always a pediatric pathologist nearby. And so trying to automate that. 
And the other project we're working on is uh, on placenta image processing. So the placenta is that organ uh, that interfaces the mother and, and the fetus. And as it turns out, if you look at the placenta, uh, some histopathology slides, you can predict uh, cardiovascular risk in the mother. Uh, and so, which is kind of cool where you can look at the placenta and then look at the risk uh, that the mother faces in terms of lifetime cardiovascular risk. Um, and it would be a good screening tool, except the pathologist is really expensive. And so if we can automate that, then we can really uh, improve um, healthcare for women. So a question that we like asking a lot of our guests is, obviously, since the time that you've started to now, uh, technology has evolved like an insane amount. And yes. uh, it's something that's impacted every field. And I'm sure it has impacted your field a huge ton. So can you tell us a bit about how, um, from, from your own personal perspective, how technology has affected your field of study and how it might have made it easier? Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, it has a huge impact. And I often point to students like um, in my own lab, how that affected. So when I first joined Carleton in 2003, I was setting up my lab because I do a lot of um, biosignals work. I, I, I purchased a bioinstrumentation amplifier. And so this mm -hmm. is like this pretty big system. <laughs> it's like this nice fancy system. I was able to buy a 16 channel system so I can get 16 channels of biosignals through that. Uh, that amplifier, I think, cost me something like fifteen to twenty thousand dollars, and then I bought a two thousand dollar analog to digital converter and a high speed four eighty six computer. I think, wow. <laughs> and so this is like you know twenty five thousand dollars later, I got that system right. And then what I'm working on right now is is looking at a more wearable version of this, which is uh, you can buy this um, these chips now. Like so, it's an integrated mm -hmm. uh, chip, which is like forty dollars. And it has like those eight amplifiers in a single chip um, with the analog to digital converters on there. <laughs> and so you have this like, you know, in terms of size, in terms of cost, that, that uh, progression of technology has just been drastic. And then so the way that we are using data has changed. And so it goes back to that idea of signal quality analysis, right? Whereas before we'd be collecting data in the lab, we'd have highly trained technicians and, 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 peop and people to collect that data and verify it's, the setup's good, the data's good. And now it's like wearable. So now we can get commercial devices to do this. And so it really flips of how we uh, actually acquire data. Um, but that also changes like the type of um, processing that we have to do. This idea of data mm -hmm. signal quality analysis is only enabled because we have so much data, right? That mm -hmm. I can you know, record continuous 24 hour seven data and throw away like half of it and still have a lot of useful parts to it. Um, and so it's just been fascinating in terms of that type of technology. And then it also changes how we view perhaps health and wellness as well. Whereas um, if you felt ill, then you might go to a hospital and, and get monitored or, or do a diagnostic test. Uh, and so that's very reactive, right? And so instead, what we can hopefully start doing is to be a bit more proactive, right? Where we can do some type of monitoring that's more individualized, uh, that is more preventative. Um, yeah. And so I think that's where things are tre trending towards. And so I guess you kind of have like, um, you've, ha you've had an experience seeing how like your field developed um, and you've kind of seen like new innovations that have moved it forward. Um, and I guess using that knowledge, do you know of any or can predict any like new innovations or areas of research that would transform uh, your field? Yeah, I mean, I read this one book that um, that was really good and it talked about, I think it was called The Inevitables, which, you know, didn't predict particular technologies, but just more particular um, technology trends, right? Mm. And so, um, 
you know, it talked about things like, you know, everything's going to be a display. So we have interactive displays everywhere, you know, it'd be like our, you know, our, our clothes or walls, you know, and we kind of see that kind of, you know, pushing towards, we see our, like our fridges and our, everything's becoming a smart device, right? And so that trend, I think, will continue. I think we also see that, um, you know, there's, there's less about um, designing uh, systems de novo. It's more about mixing. Right. So we're using technologies from different spaces and, and combining them together. And that's kind of what, how I operate. It's more of a systems level kind of stuff. And so, you know, I'm not designing like the low level electronics I'm taking this piece and that piece and putting them together in a novel kind of way. And so that type of mixing, I think is another thing that we're going to see. Uh, I think we're going to also see things move from um, to more service oriented kind of uh, design. We see that with like commercial things, like how we, we have Uber now, right? And we have Spotify, right? Everything's becoming more service delivery. And I think we're going to see that um, even in healthcare as well, that it's going to move towards a more service oriented kind of thing. And then finally, um, things are going to be more personalized and individualized, right? And so that we have a bit more customization uh, to ourselves. And in a way that as well is um, that has that feedback, constant feedback, right? Before it used to be like, I would, I would do a test and then, you know, later on, you might get a diagnosis and then someone would talk to you about, you know, what to do after that. Uh, and so that's not very real time. You know, there's like a huge delay between like the test <laughs> and stuff. Whereas here, we're going to have this kind of continuous monitoring and feedback. And so things can be adapted a bit more in real time. So I think that, yeah, there's going to be a lot more uh, to that as well as kind of like the more reliance on automation and computer aided diagnostics and stuff. On, on this side of automations, recently one of our guests was actually an AI researcher and she was telling us a bit about how AI is kind of finding its way in literally everything now. And yep. I would suspect also even in diagnosis, like that's extremely important. So can you tell us a bit about how you think AI is currently involved in your field or how will it be impacting your research in the future? Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, we talk about AI, there's like, there's a whole, that's, that covers a huge area, right? Mm -hmm. It covers everything from like um, machine learning algorithms to kind of more heuristic type uh, algorithms. And then to the more science fiction of generalized AI where it's like self-thinking kind of computers, yeah. which we don't have yet. What we do have is that kind of the other side of things, which is like um, expert systems and machine learning kind of stuff. And yes, I mean, that's the stuff that I'm involved with. So when I'm talking about um, the type of signal processing I do to, to do diagnostics from signals or images, um, we are employing kind of machine learning uh, methods or expert systems in, in doing that. And um, lately you've probably heard of the trends uh, where things are becoming, um, I guess, in, in a way more generic that can be more generalized and, and applicable. Mm -hmm. So deep learning algorithms is a, are a good example of this where before, you know, a lot of things had to be handcrafted. So we'd handcraft the features that we'd extracted of the signals and images. We would, you know, carefully select the, the type of classifier. Whereas now with the deep learning algorithm, that's kind of inherent into the system itself. And that's part of its own learning. And the performance of these things are just like incredible. Um, and so we're starting to see this trend where, you know, really hard problems are becoming uh, much more tractable and able, we're able to do. Uh, there's still some challenges that are involved with it. Uh, there's um, less transparency, so you can't, um, you know, it's harder to determine what this, these things are doing because it's, it's such a complex system with so many interconnections. Um, and so that from a healthcare perspective, that can be um, challenging, right? Like, how do you regulate something like that where you're like, I don't know how it works. <laughs> so I can't predict, you know, when it's working, when it's not working. 
And so from a regulatory perspective in healthcare, that'd be very difficult to use. Um, but you can see it very much used in the commercial realm. And so I guess you're kind of like at the forefront of all of this. You're seeing how all of these like fields are coming in to uh, connect and I guess, like you mentioned, mix. Um, so how would you say that various fields, for example, like engineering or computer science um, would be driving just overall the advancement of medicine? I guess you had already mentioned that with your, um, uh, for example, what you're working on in your research, um, but just more generally, um, how do you think those would advance medicine? Yeah, I mean, I mean, like the field of engineering and computer science and all the technology kind of oriented stuff. Um, I, the way I kind of look at it, we provide like these type of technology oriented solutions, right? And so uh, whether it be an algorithm or a device and things like that, we're providing like these type of solution platforms and algorithms. Um, and when I, you know, in my own work and I suspect in other people's work as well is like we, we, we interface with, with healthcare providers, understanding, you know, what are the, what are the challenges and in, in problems that they're facing, right? And and then we we go back and try to try to fix those things. And it's been kind of uh, an interesting kind of relationship because you know there's the healthcare system has like so many different types of challenges and problems and stuff like that. And it's through those discussions, right? You got to identify um, areas of opportunity, right? So sometimes they they'll be like, you know, we have this um, really difficult problem. Um, you know, it's probably impossible to solve, uh, but we have this other problem, which we think is easy to solve. Uh, and we're hoping that you can do that, right? And I'd be like, well, that thing that you think is easy is actually really difficult to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that thing that you think is really difficult is actually easy to do. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's through these kind of conversations and collaborations where we can, we can identify these, these areas of opportunity that we can push forward and, and, and make an impact. So like, I, like this is something that I think uh, Derek and I have seen within our own like peers and our just generation of students. It's a lot of students are now getting more and more interested in the field of biomedical engineering, obviously, as it has a huge potential to grow um, in terms of the future and what it holds for us. So we were wondering how important you think it is for students of our generation to kind of hold this interdisciplinary knowledge of both medicine and engineering or both biology and engineering and kind of combine them together. Yeah, I mean, even outside of biomedical engineering, I think that's that's probably true, right? I think everything is becoming more and more interdisciplinary. When you talk about um, kind of any um, current and interesting challenges that we have, mm-hmm. um, you know, they require an interdisciplinary lens uh, associated with it, right? Um, because the, the problems are complex, right? Anything that involves humans, I think, is complex. There's like a, a technology element associated with it. There's a social element associated with it. There's a historical element associated with it. There's a financial element associated with it, right? And so when we talk about the, these, uh, these kind of problems that our society faces, they are inherently interdisciplinary problems, right? If, Back in the day, you know, things were, were could be more, um, you know, it, not interdisciplinary, like more uh, unidisciplinary, I guess, where it's like, I need to develop this widget. <laughs> and so, you, you know, you can almost do that independently of, of everything else. But now it's like everything is so interconnected these days that, um, you know, if it's, it's hard to, 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 to effectively work on a solution without having those different perspectives um, joined in. Like, so when you were going through your own personal journey to where you reached today, 
were you very hard stuck on saying, I want to end up as a biomedical engineer or something of that nature? Or were you kind of like at the start swaying towards engineering and swayed into biology or something of that like that? Yeah. I mean, this is going to sound awful, but it's true. Um, I, I really had no idea what I was doing. So when I, when I was, a, I was a good student. So when I was, mm-hmm. you know, throughout my life and um, I come from a big family, so I'm the fifth of six children mm-hmm. and uh, all my siblings are high performing students. Um, individuals they're all doctors either medical doctors or phds or both and i'm the fifth so (laughs) so when it came time for me to go to university it was like almost a given because everyone went to university right yeah Uh, all of my siblings uh went to science and so i was like i'm not going to go to science i'm going to be a rebel and do something different (laughs) i didn't really know what to do but my dad's an engineer so no one went to engineering so i'm like i gotta do it be an engineer because you know i like I like computers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so I went to computer engineering and, and engineering as well, because, um, you know, that's what my dad did. Didn't really know much about it, but thought I'd probably like it and do well in it. And then I grew up in Waterloo, actually. So I ended up in the University of Waterloo at computer engineering, mm-hmm. mainly because it was the, the most challenging program to get into. So I did that. Yeah. <laughs> and then through yeah. my co-op, you know, I worked at different places doing digital video, 3D laser scanning, uh, telecommunications. And then, you know, I, I liked it, but wasn't like, it wasn't something I thought I could do for the rest of my life. You know, mm-hmm. I liked it for a bit and I was like, I, I want to move on to the next thing. And then my supervisor at Nortel at the time uh, said, you know, you should try biomedical engineering. I bet you would really like it. And I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and so that's, that, that mm-hmm. basically was the, the change I made because someone suggested that I would, that I would enjoy it. So I made uh-huh. that change and it turned out to be a very good change. Um, mm-hmm. And so it wasn't like, yeah, no, it wasn't planned out in like a very, you know, this is what I wanted to do, right, and aim for that. It was more um, different opportunities were presented. I looked at the choice and assessed it, and I thought, yeah, those are that's a good choice. I think I would enjoy it. I think I would do well in it. And then I, I and then I pursued it. Uh, but it it wasn't one of these like this was my like uh, <laughs> dream to do that. I see, yeah. Yeah, I think that's kind of been like a um, common theme with a lot of the people we interviewed. They kind of just say they found their own path. They weren't really like dead set on doing something and it kind of just flowed naturally. Um, and so I guess, um, do you have sort of any other like wisdom or advice for students that are aspiring to go into academia uh, that you would give? Yeah, I mean, I mean, as you said, like this is my, my story probably isn't uh, uncommon, I guess. Right. I think it's actually fairly common. Mm-hmm. Um, over the years, I spent quite a bit of time talking to people who I thought uh, were successful. Right? And I mean successful not just only in their careers, but personally as well. Like they have a, they seem to have a good social life, a good family life, a good career. They're happy, right? And I always talk to them, be like, you know, how did you get into that kind of place? Just like you're asking me, right? And the stories were always kind of that non-linear kind of stuff. Like I didn't plan to do this, but you know, this happened and that happened, <laughs> and I ended up here, and I'm really happy about it, kind of thing. And so, I, because it's so common, I think that people sh- should should almost embrace that. Just realize that, you know, you, you, you can't predict the future. And I had those, the, the saying, and I love it. I appreciate it more as time went on, which is have a plan, but accept that that plan will change, right? And what he meant by that is like, don't go through life um, just wandering aimlessly kind of thing, right? So you, you, you do have like, I'm going to try to do this, but um, you're not fully committed in, it, in that if another opportunity presents itself, you're, you're not going to be like, nope, I promise I'm going to do that. You know, you're, you're willing to look at uh, different options. And so as your tastes change or you discover different things, you're willing to make that change, right? And then the other part that's associated with that is to be content with things. Um, I think, especially for 
um, individuals who are trying to, you know, going to academia to be a faculty member, as an example, right? And if you just think of the probability of that, it's small, right? You know, like you think of how many people go from to university, right? It's actually pretty high now. It's like let's say it's forty to fifty percent of the people that do an undergrad. And how many people do a master's degree? It's maybe like five or ten percent. How many people do a PhD? That's five or ten percent you know and so yeah and how many of those end up becoming a faculty member and so now we're talking like a fraction of a percentage of people right and so it's just uh you have to be um skilled but you also need to be lucky right part of it's about timing part of it's about just getting in the right space at the right time kind of stuff and so um you know you have to realize that not everything's under your control i, I always appreciated um chris hatfield's book Right. He talks about wanting to be an astronaut and he also in a similar way, you know, being an astronaut is like so difficult. <laughs> right? You have to be skilled, but you have to be lucky. And then even if you're skilled and lucky uh, to go to outer space. Right. Very few astronauts actually get the chance to go to outer space. Right. And so if that's what his dream was, that's fantastic. And he was aiming for it, but he was always uh, ensured that he was going to be content of what he was doing. Right. And so if that luck didn't happen and he didn't get that chance to go to, to space, he would be happy with what he what he did. And that, I think that's that's all also rings true for me. It's like, you know, I always think, you know, what I'm, I'm aiming for something. And if that happens, then fantastic. If it doesn't happen. I'm still going to be happy and content. Right. I think that's an important thing to, to, to think about as well. No, certainly. I think uh, like all so far, all of our guests have said practically it's kind of been a common trend that we've been saying. We've been saying that like they didn't really have a conventional path and their life has somewhat they, just small steps throughout their life has kind of opened new doors and like new things that uh, they never knew they were interested to start off with. So, yeah. 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 And I think the, I mean, I think for students and I, it's a common thing that I hear is like the stress and anxiety that they, um, that they have is because the future is so uncertain. Right. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they feel and they're sometimes told like, you know, you, you know, you got to figure out your, your, what your life goal is and this, that, and the other, right? What's your career? What's this and stuff like that. And it's like, uh, life just doesn't happen that way, right? You can't make yeah. uh, an optimal choice in these things. I think there's probably uh, many different good choices to make and, and that's what you should be after. You shouldn't be fooling ourselves to think that we can make an optimal choice, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, no, 100%. I think as long as like us students have like the ethic and we have some sort of um, vision or like idea of where we want to end up and still be flexible at the same time. Like it's really, that's the best way of going at it. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, again, like I could have went to science instead of engineering or some mm -hmm. other thing. And I, I, I probably would still be happy and successful. Right. I could have met someone else at Nortel who would have told me maybe you should go into that. And I'd be like, sure. <laughs> right. And yeah. it, it still would have worked out. I think, you know? Yeah, most certainly. So I think these are all the questions that we want to ask you for today. Um, first of all, we want to thank you very, very dearly for taking your time out of your very busy day to support our podcast and our audience. And as for you that are at home right now, we really hope that you really enjoyed this episode and learned a little more about Dr. Chen um, and a bit about his own life and um, what work he does. Uh, we really hope to see you guys in the next two weeks for our next episode um, and make sure to have an awesome day. Thank you so much.